0: Hello, and welcome to Asia Unscripted. I'm Vivian Su. And I'm Isabel Beleza. And this is U.S.-Asia Institute's summer podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with first-hand knowledge of Asia.
1: We have with us today Craig Allen, president of the U.S.-China Business Council and the former ambassador of the United States to Brunei, Jerusalem. Craig had a long, distinguished career in the U.S. public service, notably working for the U.S. Department of Commerce in Taiwan, Beijing, Tokyo, and Johannesburg. Craig was sworn in as a United States ambassador to Brunei on December 19, 2014, and he served there until July 2018, when he transitioned to president of the U.S.-China Business Council.
0: In the following clips, Craig speaks about the economic prosperity and political stability that he observed during his time in Brunei please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. We start this episode with Craig introducing himself.
2: So I was a diplomat of 33 years and I came up through the Department of Commerce system promoting trade almost exclusively with Asia with a special focus on China. After 30 years in the diplomatic service, I was asked to be an ambassador and so I was lucky enough to be sent to Brunei, a relatively small country on the South China Sea in the northwest side of Borneo. And for those who are not familiar, Brunei is sandwiched between the two Malaysian states of Sabah and Sarawak. But it is an independent country, it is a sultanate, and it is ruled by a royal family. The sultan is Hassanal Bol- Bol- Bolkiah, and his family has ruled Brunei for some 29 generations, or 700 years. So it's a great honor to be a U.S. ambassador in Brunei, Jerusalem.
1: Uh, so can you elaborate a little bit about religion in the country? So religion is very
2: important throughout all of Southeast Asia and particularly in the Muslim areas of Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. And in the case of Brunei, the Sultan is there in a government capacity, he has a police capacity, he's the head of the military, uh, but he's also a head of the Islamic religion. And of all those many hats he wears, it is perhaps the head of the Islam in Brunei that is most important. To the majority of his subjects, who are seventy percent of whom are Muslim, so while the Sultan is a, a very secular person and he delegates Islam to uh, a ministry and to the state mufti and, and to uh, the various Islamic scholars, nonetheless he is absolutely at the head of the structure and rules, at least in part, due to his legitimacy as a Islamic ruler. I would note that throughout the world, when you look at uh, particularly the Islamic countries, it is oftentimes the monarchies that are the most stable and long-lasting and indeed most prosperous. And uh, Brunei would fall into that category. It is wealthy, it is stable. There has been one family in the monarchy uh, for 29 generations. And I would expect that stability to continue into the foreseeable future, in part as a result of the sultan's legitimacy in Islamic terms and his legitimacy in bringing prosperity to all Bruneians. Brunei has a per capita income of about $45,000 U.S. a year equivalent, uh, free education, free health and a good welfare system, and therefore it's a very stable and indeed quiet country.
1: So building upon the prosperity of Brunei, can you talk a little bit about their economy, like what are the key industries, and how does their level of development compare to the development in other Southeast Asian countries?
2: Great. So Brunei is second to Singapore in terms of per capita income and development. And indeed, Brunei and Singapore have a very interesting relationship, as they were both born at the same time in the same, in a very similar manner, upon the establishment of Malaysia. But with regard to the economy, it is very much an oil-based economy. Most of that oil is offshore, but there's also a great deal of oil onshore. So approximately a hundred million years ago, the island of Brunei broke off from peninsular Malaysia, and it took with it millennia of hydrocarbons. So along Sabah and Sarawak coast, as well as Brunei, there are large deposits of both uh, oil and gas. In Brunei, there are large deposits also of coal. But it was in 1929 that Shell struck oil in Brunei. And since that time, oil and natural gas have been the fountain uh, from which uh, their prosperity has been built. So, some 99% of exports are hydrocarbons. Some 90% of government income is hydrocarbons. But some 40% of the population work directly in the oil and gas industry. And everyone else works in tertiary industries or in the service industries. Brunei is a small population with a large foundation of oil. And therefore, this prosperity should be expected to continue for many, many years hence. I would have to say, though, when you're in Brunei, you don't really notice the oil industry per se. It's very clean. There are some petrochemical plants onshore, but uh, they're very well run and very clean. And you could go scuba diving uh, around the oil, the offshore oil rigs. And so, while it is an oil-based economy, it's very pretty and a very beautiful economy with a very uh, magnificent natural endowment. And that is true both offshore with a lot of coral reefs that are in pretty good shape, as well as onshore with a magnificent jungle in the hinterland of Brunei. And uh, a number ethnicities who live in that jungle and have been at home in that jungle for 10,000 years and who have uh, their own unique cultural heritage. So it's a very rich country, both culturally as well as in terms of the hydrocarbons, as well as uh, in terms of the history and the social dynamics.
1: So who are Brunei's key partners or allies in the region?
2: Well, Brunei, as I noted, has a very Important historic relationship with Singapore. So when Malaysia was being formed, Lee Kuan Yew, the founder of Singapore, and Hassanal Bolkiah's father, that is Seri Begawan, were very good friends, and they both made the determination at the same time to leave Malaysia or not to join the Malaysian Federation. Now the reasons are different. For the most part, Lee Kuan Yew made that determination on the basis of his geographical position of Singapore and the ethnic composition of Singapore being a little bit different from the rest of Malaysia. Hassanal Bolkiah made that choice because they were not able at that time in the negotiations to determine what share of Brunei's oil would go to the rest of Malaysia. And also the Sultan, uh, Sari Begawan, the current Sultan's father, At that time, was not satisfied as being one of 14 uh, sultans in Malaysia and felt that as a result of history and as a result of his bloodline directly to the Prophet deserved a unique place within that Malaysian court system. So, Brunei broke off from the rest of Malaysia and uh, with very close ties to Singapore. I would say that Brunei's current relations with Malaysia are superb. That particularly with the state governments of Sarawak to the south and Saba to the north, there's a very close interaction. There's a huge number of family relationships back and forth. And so that's a very important relationship. Brunei also has a very important relationship with the UK. Brunei was a protectorate of the UK For many, many decades, and vestiges of that relationship remain very clear. One important vestige of that relationship is that there is a battalion of Gurkhas uh, uh, in Brunei that uh, remain there at the invitation of the Sultan to the Queen. They are under the command of the British, and that is the only British military base in Asia. Brunei also has a very important relationship with the United States and with China, with the United States, we have a treaty relationship going back 170 years to 1850. And that is a very important treaty. And it establishes the relationship between the United States of, as one of friendship, commerce, and understanding. That treaty is in place today, it is extant, it is actionable. Um, And we are super proud of that long-standing relationship and Brunei places great emphasis on its relationship with the United States and a uh, mechanism to maintain its territorial integrity. Brunei also has an important relationship with China. And that relationship was solidified probably around the year 1450 when one of uh, the Ming Emperor's uh, daughters, probably of a consort, was married into the Brunei royal family, giving the Brunei royal family both the blood of the Ming Emperor and the blood of the Prophet. And that is very important. Brunei's relationship with China is a bit different from all other ASEAN countries' relationship with China, in part because back in the Ming Dynasty, The Sultan's grandfather, 25 times removed, visited Nanjing, visited the Ming Emperor, and had a relationship with the Ming Emperor. He died in Nanjing. The Ming Emperor at that time was very distraught at the death of his guest, and it is as a result of that Uh, that two things happened. You can go to Nanjing and visit the tomb of the emperor of Brunei, or the king of Brunei, the sultan of Brunei. And also, the Ming emperor sent back his daughter to marry into the royal family, cementing that relationship. And so the Chinese government, Beijing, looks at Brunei, in a little bit of a special light. Different from Malaysia, certainly different, very different from Vietnam, different from the Philippines, different from every other country. And there's a a closer relationship there than with most other ASEAN countries. I would say that Brunei also has an important relationship with Saudi Arabia, uh, and that's very important to them because they send some 2,000 pilgrims to the Hajj every year. They recognize Saudi, authority in matters of Islam. and so that relationship is important. The relationship between Japan and Korea is very important because that is the offtake. Uh, they are the customers of most of Brunei's oil uh, and gas. Vietnam and Philippines and Indonesia also have very close relations with Brunei. There are probably some 40, 50, 60,000 Indonesians resident in Brunei, probably 30,000 Filipinos. And Vietnam, of course, is a neighbor across the, the South China Sea. Uh, there's not a large Vietnamese ethnic group in Brunei, but there are sometimes at sea issues, and uh, often Vietnamese fishermen are, are arrested in Bruneian waters, and then uh, usually quite quickly deported. So those relationships are all complex, uh, but Brunei has been an extant since about 1300, and it has a very stable relationship within the Southeast Asian communities. And the Sultan is uh, the longest reigning monarch, certainly in the region, and uh, one of the longest reigning monarchs in the world. So this is a very stable, very authoritative, very predictable, very prosperous uh, team player within ASEAN. I would also just add on to that, Brunei looks at its international place. Uh, ASEAN plays a very important role as a regional grouping. The Organization of Islamic Conference also plays an important role as to its decision making, for example. In addition, Brunei is one of the founding members of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, it's very proud of that founder's authority. So Brunei has a very uh, is well integrated in the region and well integrated globally and proud of its place in the world.
0: So I'd like to return to the point of the Brunei economy being one that is oil-based. We've seen that globally control over oil resources can be a source of conflict. So has this been the case for Brunei?
2: So approximately 15 years ago, the Malaysian prime minister and the Brunei sultan demarcated the offshore line and came up with an agreement as to how they would share their undersea resources. And uh, the Malaysians have been very respectful of that agreement. And with the recent Malaysian election, there were some worries that there might be a rethinking of the agreement, but it appears that is not the case. So the Bruneians have also been more successful than Malaysians and Vietnamese and Filipinos, their neighbors, at drilling in the deeper water and they have not suffered the Chinese harassment that Malaysia, Indonesia, and Vietnam have suffered. And thus, there has not been that limitation on their ability to exploit their natural resources as has been felt by the Philippines, Malaysia, and Vietnam. And I think that the Bruneians would just as soon keep that quiet and go along to get along, uh, keep their head down. But they are cognizant that the nine-dash line does run through their water, that is absolutely the case, but they would prefer not to make an issue of that and to continue to be allowed to exploit their resources as they see fit. They have been very careful not to imply or explicitly do anything that might compromise their sovereignty over over those waters. Thus far, there has not been a problem And they are hoping that it will remain that way.
1: So shifting to Brunei's presence on the global stage, recently Brunei implemented a Sharia penal code and that received a lot of international criticism and scrutiny. Could you talk a little bit about what the penal code was and how have other countries in Brunei navigated this situation?
2: Sure. Sharia in the Islamic world is a Kind of a code of ethics. It is a guide to good behavior. It is a call for purity. And it is not, in and of itself, a penal code. So, Sharia, in and of itself, is something that no Muslim is going to uh, really negotiate. That is an imperative. Now, the Sharia Penal Code is a body of law. That is based on the Quran and the sayings of the prophets and the actions of the prophet and Islamic traditions. That tries to mandate standards that a good Islamic society would adhere to, and so many of these uh, standards, in their foundation, are similar to the Ten Commandments. Uh, however, they, it is putting a, if you will, a an earthly punishment on breaking the Ten Commandments. And so I would have to say that Brunei and most Islamic countries have had one form of Sharia law forever, or at least since they became Islamic. So in one sense, there is nothing new here at all. And at the same time, as you rightly noted, His Majesty mandated that the Sharia penal code would go into place and would be enforced, and an entire judicial system from judges and prosecutors and prison officials have been put in place that have been trained in Islamic law, and so they are uh, ready to go. Now, as a result of the global outcry, and I think very legitimate concerns over the rights of minorities, and by minority I would include uh, Christians, LGBT, uh, Hindu, other non-religious groups, there have been interpretations to the Sharia Penal Code. His Majesty has come out and has said that things done in private will remain private and that in Islam, privacy is a very important right and he's not going to be poking around in people's private lives. And that's very important. And it gives, particularly, the LGBT community uh, some solace. Another thing that he said, which is very important, is that Brunei has had a moratorium on the death penalty for many years. The last execution was around 1990 for a self claimed murderer, and before that in 1960. So there has only been, I I believe, two executions in the modern history of Brunei. And so by announcing the implementation of the moratorium of death penalty to Sharia, he has said that those crimes, quote unquote, under Sharia law, that are potentially punishable by death, will not receive that punishment. And that is extremely important. Those crimes would include blasphemy, apostasy, adultery, and homosexual activity, or sodomy, uh, which is not exclusively a homosexual activity. And so, by noting what happens in private stays in private, and by noting that there will, that Br- I will continue the moratorium on the death penalty, the sultan has Used his authority of the Islamic leader to define how Sharia will be implemented in Brunei, which he has the absolute right to do under the Sharia Code, going back to the early days of the Prophet, going back to the Ottoman Empire, and before all sultans have had that responsibility to define how Islam and how Sharia will be implemented in the context of a multiracial, multi ethnic uh, society. So the metaphor the Bruneians are using these days is that, you know, some people are born left-handed and some people are born right-handed, and it just makes no sense at all to force a lefty to use his right hand. I think that that metaphor is a very good metaphor that don't force people into doing things that are unnatural to them, that just don't fit them. So Brunei has implemented the uh, Sharia Penal Code. But this is interpreted in a manner that's very different from a penal code or a law in the West. It's really a different type of social regulatory structure and really not what we normally consider a law. Per se, that said, I think that it has had consequences, uh, particularly in gender roles, inheritance, in custody battles of our children, in other in marriage and divorce, in what women will typically wear in terms of apparel. It has had an effect. Many Bruneian women will welcome that, many will not welcome that. I think those who do not welcome that will probably dress as a darn well please. Um Nobody's really going to care very much. As the sultan took this very fateful move and then made adjustments in terms of the implementation, there has been some pushback in social media, fairly among the more moderate, younger Muslims in Brunei. Uh, but it hasn't been anything dramatic. And uh, so far as I know, there's been no exodus of minorities from Brunei. Brunei continues to have a very vibrant and indeed colorful and loud Christian community that, is, that continues uh, to thrive in Brunei. So this is not particularly coercive or certainly not violent or even conflict-prone type of operation. Rather, it should be seen in Islamic context as a mechanism to enforce Islamic terms, uh, social stability, and social uh, order, despite the fact that in gender terms, that might not be particularly modern or appealing to a Western society.
0: So we like to end all of our episodes with kind of a fun and personal question. Just to think about your time in Brunei, what was your favorite food there?
2: Well, the food in Brunei is uh, magnificent. Uh <laughs> And so this is a really hard question uh, but I would if I can have two, I would say that the, the fruit of Brunei is just extraordinary in its diversity. We had fruits that we never knew existed and it was absolutely magnificent to have a different fruit every day of the month and even on our street. And it was a little alleyway. We could count like 12 different types of fruit that would just fall to the ground and nobody would take it. It was so uh, fruitful and uh, so enormously productive and, and wealthy. But my second thing, and this is a little bit more of a sinful habit, is there is nothing better than roti with Malaysian cuisine. And to have that roti, I know it's very unhealthy for you. It's full of oil and salt and sugar, but boy, oh boy, does that taste great. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or preferably all three. And if I could have a third choice, the <laughs> fish in Brunei was magnificent. The uh, fishermen uh, would come back uh, every day, and we'd head out to the fish market, and you know buy the fish while they were still flopping around. The Malay know how to cook fish just absolutely beautifully. And so the food in Brunei is, is magnificent and very, very varied, as well as just of enormous quantities. So a real place to visit. What a, what a wonderful place to live for three or four years.
1: That sounds absolutely delicious. So thank you so much for sharing your insights and knowledge about Brunei. We really appreciate it.
2: It is my honor to be with you. Thank you very
1: much. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstituteorg slash asiaunscripted, where you will find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find U.S. Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979 on Twitter at USAsia Institute and on Instagram at us.asia.institute.